Welcome to Forgotten TV, the podcast that brings you TV memories of the 70s and 80s with a focus on short-lived TV shows, pilots, and made-for-TV movies. I'm Chris Cooling. It's Saturday morning again at the Forgotten TV studio, and Tommy and I are ready to continue our look at strange live-action Saturday morning TV. You're making my life a misery. Yeah, yeah, just say it. It's Saturday morning weirdness on this episode of Forgotten TV. Part 2. Having covered the first half of the 1970s, we are now up to 1975. Remember, so much of the weirdness we're about to consider is visual, and there's an accompanying playlist where you can follow along by watching the videos on YouTube. The link to the playlist is in the show notes. Number 6. Also the sixth production of Sid and Marty Croft. It's The Lost Saucer. Lasting one season and 16 episodes, six of these episodes were later used as one of the shows rotated inside the Croft Super Show. With a decent theme song by Michael Lloyd, this was sort of a time tunnel meets Lost in Space. Ruth Buzzy and Jim Neighbors played Phi and Fum, alien androids from planet ZR3 in the 24th century traveling in a flying saucer. Larry Larson tagged along as the Dorse, a half-dog, half-horse that looked like a full-bodied dog costume with one of those creepy horse heads you can order from Amazon. I don't really know what to think about that. In the opening sequence, they inadvertently abduct Earth kids Jerry and Alice. They're getting abducted. Hopefully they don't get a butt probe. The flying saucer can travel through time as well as space, but in the first episode, the yearometer gets damaged, thus preventing the androids from returning Jerry and Alice to the correct year of 1975. Phi and Fum bicker and argue incessantly with each other, and neither seem competent with the ship's controls. The adventures are usually set on Earth or on an Earth colony, either in the distant past or in the distant future, hundreds or even thousands of years from now. For a kid's show, this actually touches on some interesting themes, and episodes were blatant social commentaries. The premiere episode has them visit a future society where people are both faceless and nameless, and names have been replaced with numbers, because how else would the government keep track of you? Other episodes depicted a city where the population had grown lazy and obese because robots and push-button conveniences do all the physical work, or where machines are outlawed due to a global energy shortage, or where everyone is made to look alike by wearing colored polka dots on their faces and blankies the non-polka-dotted are discriminated against. 
I know, hardly original and themes that we saw done to better effect on Star Trek, The Twilight Zone, and other shows. But still, I'm quite impressed with the ideas presented on a 25-minute Saturday morning kids show. Behind the Scenes Jim Neighbors and Ruth Buzzy would sometimes reference their earlier characters or catchphrases from shows like Gomer Pyle or Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Many studio exteriors and set pieces were leftovers from earlier Croft efforts like Land of the Lost, H.R. Puffin Stuff, or Sigmund and the Sea Monsters. In fact, props were often shared between this and the similar show we will consider next. Sometimes they would be rushed from one set to the next because they were needed for filming. Because of the format of the show, The Lost Saucer was more reliant on guest stars than any prior Croft show. Guest stars included... Anne-Marie, Billy Barty, Walker Edmiston, Richard Deacon, Robert Quarry, yes, Count Yorga, Gordon Jump, Marvin Kaplan, and Stanley Ralph Ross. No complete release of this show has ever been made on any packaged media, although six episodes that were included later on the Croft Super Show were available on VHS and currently on DVD. <laughs> Number 7, and the seventh production of Sid and Marty Croft, although it was produced concurrently with the very thematically similar Lost Saucer. Also created by credits go to Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, Chuck McCann, and Earl Dowd. What shows next, Tommy? The Far Out Space Nuts. Lasting one season and 15 episodes, Bob Denver and Chuck McCann were Junior and Barney, NASA concession workers that were loading food into the crew module of a rocket. When Barney calls lunch, Junior hits the launch button. The rocket blasts off and takes them on various misadventures on alien planets. Patty Maloney tagged along as Honk, their furry little alien friend who made honking sounds out of the horn on top of her head instead of speaking. Tommy, have you ever seen Gilligan's Island? No. What's Gilligan's Island? For all intents and purposes, Bob Denver was reprising his Gilligan role here. And if Bob was Gilligan, Chuck McCann was the skipper, continually annoyed by Junior's bumbling. The show played much like a spoof of Star Trek, interspersed with slapstick routines, incessant ad-libbing, and writing that referenced ancient movie cliches, and even snuck in adult references that went over the kids' heads. The ship would be captured by aliens or land on a new planet each week. That is terribly photoshopped. This is before Photoshop, Tommy. 
Is this green screen? This is before green screen, Tommy. How did they do it then? With a blue screen. Behind the scenes. Bob Denver was offered the lead role on 1975's live action The Ghostbusters, but turned it down to take the role on Far Out Space Nights. A number of the same guest stars that appeared on The Lost Saucer made appearances here, including Stanley Ralph Ross, Paul Wexler, Robert Quarry, Joan Gerber, also Hal Smith, yes, Otis from The Andy Griffith Show, the burly character actor Leo Gordon, and John Carradine notably appeared in one episode. The show was replaced with Arc 2 the following season and was never rerun on CBS or any other network but was included in the late 70s syndication package, The Croft Superstars. Although VHS editions were released, no DVD has been produced for Far Out Space Nuts. Number eight on our list, and the only non-Croft entry, was 1976's Monster Squad. I work as night watchman here at Fred's Wax Museum to put myself through criminology college. It used to be very lonely until recently when I plugged in my crime computer. Suddenly, oscillating vibrations brought to life three legendary monsters. Dracula. The werewolf. And Frankenstein. Creatures hated and feared for centuries now determined to make up for their past misbehaving by fighting crime wherever they find it. Together, we're the Monster Squad! Monster Squad aired from September to December of 1976 on NBC and had no relation to the 1987 movie of the same name. Thirteen episodes were produced. Criminology student Walt works as a night watchman at a wax museum. Walt builds a crime computer that, when turned on, oscillating vibrations brought to life nearby wax figures of Dracula, Wolfman, and Frankenstein's monster. To atone for their past misdeeds, the monsters become essentially superhero crime fighters, with Walt coordinating and monitoring the trio from the wax museum via the crime computer. Starring a pre-love boat, Fred Grandy as Walt, Henry Pollock II as Dracula, Buck Cartalian as Bruce W. Wolfe, and Mike Lane as Frank N. Stein. Developed by Stanley Ralph Ross, this was very similar in tone to the 1966 Batman series, with exaggerated camp villains such as Queen Bee, the Astrologer, the Weatherman, Ultra Witch. The set design and props were also very reminiscent of Batman. The squad had their own customized black monster van, and each monster had a utility belt with a communicator device used to keep in touch with Walt, who apparently created them for the monsters to use. Their CB-style codenames were Night Flyer for Dracula, Chamber of Horrors for Walt, Green Machine for Frank, and Furball for Bruce. Doesn't seem amusing, and now I'm starting to hate the 90s. I think you're a little confused about what decade we're in. Behind the scenes. 
Less than a year before doing this series, Henry Pollock II also played Count Dracula in TV commercials for Universal Studios Hollywood's New Castle Dracula attraction. Both Mike Lane and Buck Cartalian were former professional wrestlers. The remote control for the crime computer is actually an off-the-shelf Mego Star Trek communicator working walkie-talkie toy. The Star Trek name was, of course, covered over and it was all painted a light color, but it, it definitely was the toy. The alert sound from the communicator was even used for the sound effect in the show sped up a bit. I used to have one of these things. Although the show turned out to be not very successful, there was a number of licensed products for Monster Squad, including action figures from Ideal Toys, a Milton Bradley board game, coloring books, Halloween costumes, and a puzzle from HG Toys. Guest stars that appeared on Monster Squad were Sid Haig, Jonathan Harris, as well as a number of guest stars that had appeared on Batman, including Billy Curtis, Barry Denon, Julie Newmar, and stuntman Victor Paul. Monster Squad was released on DVD in 2009 and again in 2012, but they are currently out of print and kind of pricey. After these messages, we'll be right back. See stars shine on CBS Saturday. See Pebbles, Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner, Scooby-Doo, Shazam and Isis, Space Nuts, Ghostbusters, Valley of the Dinosaurs, Bad Albert, the Children's Film Festival. Two Davids Walk Into a Bar was filmed in front of a live studio audience. With Sony's Betamax, you won't miss a thing. A triple play. You've just seen a triple play. No, I didn't. If you like the historic look at Forgotten TV, check out Two Davids Walk Into a Bar with David Lawler and David Anderson. They're currently doing a multi-episode look at the complete history of home video, from the earliest days of Cartrivision to the current Blu-ray format. Check out Two Davids Walk Into a Bar on the Frequent Wire Podcast Network. Let's do it. All right. I'm, I'm David Lawler. And I'm David Anderson. And we'll see you at the... Oh, sorry. <laughs> we'll see you on your TV screen on VHS. And now, back to our show. Number 9. And the pièce de résistance of Saturday Morning Weirdness. This Saturday Morning Children's Variety Show was the eighth Saturday Morning production by the Crofts. The show consisted of musical segments and skits with recurring show-within-a-show series segments that ran about 15 minutes each, sort of a Saturday Morning Kids Saturday Night Live. It's the Croft Super Show. Don't get left behind. Take a trip with us today. We will lead you to a land of dreams. Croft has some super shows. They will blow your mind away. When you join us,
Super Show. The Croc Super Show. Yeah, come on, follow those creepy old kids. Wait, no, old people. We'll get into those segments in a bit, but let's first talk about the musical segments and hosts of our show. The Crofts manufactured a band for the show called Captain Cool and the Kongs. In the first season, they were a wacky glam rock band, as you can see in the video. The Kongs would perform live in front of an audience at the World of Sid and Marty Croft Indoor Amusement Park in Atlanta. Yes, the Crofts had their own theme park. Don't tell Horatio Hoodoo. <laughs> Originally five members, the group consisted of Captain Cool, Michael Limbeck, who would join one day at a time the year after the Croft Super Show, Super Chick, played by Deborah Klinger, Turkey, Mickey McMeal, Nashville, played by comedian Louise Duarte, and Flatbush, who was singer Burt Summer, who had played Woodstock and the original Broadway production of Hair. Unfortunately, Summer passed away in 1990 at age 41. In the second season, Flatbush's character and his feathered pimp hat were dropped, and the band's image was toned down. Gone was the glam face paint. Even the performances were filmed in a studio with an audience of kids instead of the larger venue we saw in season one. Most of the songs performed were written by the Osmonds. In traditional Croft fashion, two albums were released featuring Captain Cool and the Kongs, both in 1978. The self-titled Captain Cool and the Kongs featured songs from the band, with sounds similar to the Bee Gees, ABBA, and Olivia Newton-John. The other album was Stories from the Croft TV Super Show, which included comedy skits. The Kongs would go on to perform on the Brady Bunch Variety Hour, a prime-time Croft production, as well as American Bandstand. Baby, what gives? I gotta know. I've never been down so low. Don't take the light out of my life. Don't let me live a broken man. Hey, you give it up. Let's talk about the show segments. Early in season one, the show ran 90 minutes, and series segments included Dr. Shrinker, Electra Woman and Dinah Girl, and Wonderbug, plus reruns of The Lost Saucer, as previously mentioned. The Lost Saucer was dropped when the show was cut to one-hour runtime. In season two, Dr. Shrinker and Electra Woman and Dinah Girl were dropped and replaced with Bigfoot and Wild Boy and Magic Mongo. Now, I don't remember this at all, but instead of a third season, the show was massively revamped and moved to NBC. Captain Cool and the Kongs were replaced by the Bay City Rollers, a Scottish pop band. Now retitled The Croft Superstar Hour, new live-action segments Horror Hotel and The Lost Island replaced the previous ones. This was sort of a free-form variety hour and recycled characters from H.R. Puffin Stuff, Lidsville, and other Croft shows, bringing back Billy Hayes as Witchy Poo and Horatio Hoodoo, although not played by Charles Nelson Riley. 
This revamped version was not very popular, and the runtime was cut from an hour to 30 minutes after just eight weeks. Of these five total segments appearing on both seasons of the Super Show, only Dr. Shrinker was truly a Croft creation. The rest were outside projects by Joe Ruby and Ken Spears and produced through the Croft's facilities. Four of these five were bundled into a Croft Superstars syndication package along with all the prior Croft shows, which was typically shown weekday mornings on local stations. sci-fi crime-fighting superhero duo, Electra Woman and Dinah Girl were played by Deidre Hall and Judy Stranges. They were reporters for Newsmaker magazine when they were in their secret identity, alter egos, although this wasn't really explored much in the 12-minute runtime. There were 16 of these segments, which were later re-edited into eight 24-minute episodes. With their assistant Frank, who hung out at the Electra base operating the CrimeScope computer and talking to the duo on the Electricoms while they rode around in the Electra car, you get the idea. We get many of the same elements we saw in the 66 Batman as well as Monster Squad. Dyna Girl would even utter phrases like Electra Wow or Electra Yikes. And we had the same type of over-the-top villains and cliffhanger endings. The duo wore shimmering jazzercise-type outfits, and more than a few middle-aged men now write about experiencing new feelings watching this show. Behind the Scenes This was one of the better uh, Croft Super Show segments. It was created, of course, by Ruby Spears, which had done a lot of Saturday morning Hanna-Barbera animated shows, and they were about to become an 80s animation powerhouse to be reckoned with. Former model Deidre Hall joined the cast of Days of Our Lives the same year of 1976 and has had a recurring role on that daytime drama ever since. In 2001, the WBTV network commissioned a pilot for a new version of the show that would be a more adult, cynical parody of the original show set 25 years later. Margie Post played a washed-up, promiscuous, alcoholic electrowoman brought out of retirement by a fan that would be the new Dinah Girl, played by Ann Stedman. The WB did not pick this up as a series. In 2016, a new updated reimagining of Electra Woman and Dinah Girl was released as an internet series. YouTube personalities Grace Helbig and Hannah Hart starred in eight 11-minute webisodes, which depicted the duo being discovered by a superhero management company, moving to Los Angeles, and getting an upgrade in costumes and equipment. This version is available on DVD and various streaming platforms. The entire original series of Electra Woman and Dinah Girl is available on DVD. Dr. Shrinker, Dr. Shrinker, be the 
another of the original season one recurring segments was Dr. Shrinker. Taking inspiration from classic movies like The Incredible Shrinking Man, Attack of the Puppet People, and Dr. Cyclops, maybe with a little Land of the Giants thrown in, Dr. Shrinker was a mad scientist who creates a shrink ray that can miniaturize anything. Three young adults named Brad, BJ, and Gordy crash land their plane on an island where they meet Dr. Shrinker and his diminutive assistant Hugo. They are promptly shrinked, shrunk, sh- shrunken to six inches tall. You can probably guess the rest. The show depicted the Shrinkies trying to return to their normal size and get off the island. They were pursued by Dr. Shrinker and Hugo as proof that the shrinking ray works. Ooh, look, strange people. We're going to go in the house. Oh, God, we're going to get stepped on. It was very formulaic, as even Dr. Shrinker noted. No, Hugo, it's no use arguing with me. Those Shrinkies are making a fool of the great Dr. Shrinker. I chase the Shrinkies. I catch the Shrinkies. The Shrinkies escape. It's a vicious cycle, and it's driving me mad. Behind the Scenes Jay Robinson starred as Dr. Shrinker, whose previous great accomplishment was playing Caligula in 1953's The Robe. By the 70s, he was making the rounds as TV guest star. Billy Barty again returned to the world of Croft as Hugo. Ted Eccles was Brad, who had starred in the wonderful 1969 film My Side of the Mountain. And Jeff McKay was Gordy. Now, he went on to be Corky in the 1982 forgotten TV show Tales of the Gold Monkey. Sitting in a junkyard green, super up is a pile of cars. Looking for an old car, found a funny sled car, let's make him ours. Found a magic horn, a new car was born, the top is in the Rounding out our first season, recurring series segments was Wonderbug. Wonderbug was a rusty old dune buggy found in a junkyard by three teenagers. Really, it was an assembly of parts from multiple old junked cars. The kids find Schleppcar, so named due to the personalized license plate that had a personality and could drive itself and talk, or at least mumble. The kids soon discover whenever they tell Schleppcar to do its thing, it would honk its horn. We need Wonderbug! And transform into Wonderbug, a red super dune buggy with smiling chrome fenders and headlight eyes. Yeah, it looks like a haunted car that would kill you as, as it looks at you. Wonderbug could fly. That's fake! It's not really flying. And had a trunk full of disguises for the kids to use in their inexplicable battle against evil. Behind the scenes. This was the segment that most closely resembled an animated cartoon. Unfortunately, all the characters were so irritatingly idiotic, they were exasperating to the audience. It also was the one that had the cheapest looking effects. Incredibly, this was the only segment that survived into season two. 
Wonderbug was a dune runner manufactured by Dune Buggy Enterprises of Westminster, California. As far as merchandising, Wonderbug had an ideal board game as well as a metal lunchbox by Aladdin. In Season 2 of the Croft Super Show, two new segments were added to the show. Let's first look at Magic Mongo. teenagers, I'm, I'm beginning to sense a pattern here. Donald, Lorraine, and Christy find an old bottle on the beach, and they discover it is the home of Mongo, a genie. Oh, look, we drank poison. Now we're hallucinating. Only the three kids know he is a genie. To the rest of the world, he is Donald's Uncle Mongo, complete with loud Hawaiian shirt and pork pie hat. Well, running up and hugging a strange man? I don't think that's safe. Mongo's magical attempts to help his young masters lead to some wacky adventures, but mostly they spend time foiling the attempts of bullies Ace and Duncey. Behind the scenes. This segment was almost as cheaply produced as Wonderbug. Almost. This was possibly the most formulaic of the segments. The show played like an average sitcom and typically ended with the kids pulling some simple prank on Mongo and these lines. That's our Mongo! <laughs> Helene Limbeck played Lorraine. Yes, Michael Limbeck's sister, fresh off her run on Welcome Back, Cotter. Mongo was played by voice actor Lenny Weinrib, who provided the voices of H.R. Puffin Stuff, multiple voices on Lidsville, Inch High Private Eye, and Scrappy Doo, as well as the voice of Timer in the Time for Timer ABC 1970s public service announcements. And now we come to the last Croft Super Show segment. Developed for television again by Ruby Spears, it's Bigfoot and Wild Boy. Out of the great Northwest comes the legendary Bigfoot, who eight years ago saved a young child lost in the vast wilderness and raised that child until he grew up to be Wild Boy. That opening explains it all. Bigfoot had tremendous strength, running and jumping powers, and seemed to be indestructible and immortal on this show. He cannot run that fast. How to add conflict and drama. Let's have entirely destructible Wild Boy perpetually placed in danger. 
To give Wild Boy something to do, characters Susie, a Native American girl, and later Cindy, an archaeology student, usually needed rescuing. Bigfoot and Wild Boy both seem to be able to telepathically understand animals. Oh, and Bigfoot and Wild Boy are something of a local secret. Their existence is not generally known to the world. Ray Young played Bigfoot, and Joseph Butcher was Wild Boy, whose real name was never revealed. That person in the Bigfoot costume is not his parent. It's a strange thing that started raising him. Behind the scenes... This was the first Croft Brothers show to be shot on film, rather than videotape since H.R. Puffin stuff, and the first Croft show that was filmed on location. The styling and depiction of Bigfoot's powers seemed directly lifted from the $6 million man, who also had begun to have the recurring bionic Bigfoot character the prior year. This segment was so popular it was spun off into its own series after the Croft Super Show ended, with the previous segments from Croft Super Show Season 1 edited into half-hour episodes. After these edits, we got a total of 20 half-hour episodes before it was canceled at the end of the summer of 1979. Then, in the fall of 1979, for the first time in a decade, There were no Sid and Marty Croft programs running on any of the networks, and Saturday Morning Network TV returned to an all-animated schedule. I've only touched the surface of what Sid and Marty Croft have produced. They, They also made Land of the Lost, which at some point will be its own forgotten TV episode. They were responsible for primetime entertainment variety shows, such as Barbara Mandrell and the Mandrell Sisters, The Brady Bunch, Various Variety Hours, uh, Donnie and Marie, also the late 80s syndicated puppet show DC Follies, and much more. Here are a few memories shared by Sid and Marty Croft. Croft Super Show, we created some great shows there, and they were all in reality, and we didn't have to do them in, you know, Lidsville and in Puffin Living Island. We had a shot at surviving with these shows, and we had great creativity. We found good people in Wonderbug, created that car, you know, Electro Woman and Diner Girl. That still is alive. We're going to either do a series or a movie of that now. You know, Wonderbug's going to one day be a movie. So the shows that came out of that, Dr. Shrinker, which is a great show with... with Billy with, Barty, yeah. With Billy Barty and Jay Robinson. So that, that Croft Super Show, that whole group of shows, it was very important to, to me, and especially now. So, you know, we did some of that, and then we did, we did others, you know, like, you know, the Puffin stuffs that had no reality from the standpoint of, you know, trying to make this thing work and stay alive while you're doing it. And those are the stories that I think that people are interested in you know, that want to know about our careers. We screwed with every kid's mind. All the Croft stuff has an edge. We still have probably 30 to 40 million dedicated fans, and I know that they're there. In fact, I told my brother, we, I wish we could get a hold of them all. If they all sent us a dollar, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. You cannot be creative and do a show stoned. You know, he just isn't gonna work. And Sid and myself really never did the drugs. The bottom line is, the audience probably was getting loaded. 
The Crofts have been playing with dolls their whole life. You know, my brother opened for Judy Garland. I joined them then. And Sinatra and Liberace. We worked for a lot of stars. We were a surefire act. The star wants you to warm up the audience. So we were consistent. NBC came to us and said, look, why don't you come up with your own show? That's when we came up with Puff and stuff. So, you know, it evolved. You don't make this thing happen overnight. So it was an evolution. The big thing is, if you retire and you stay home and you watch daytime television, you'll be dead in a month. So I don't want to do that. So that's what keeps me from retiring. I also don't want to die and see this in a hospital. I want to fall out of an airplane. We have survived every other company that was in kids programming, including Hanna-Barbera, Filmation, and lots of them. They either went bankrupt, they either sold out, or they died. So we didn't either. Now 88 and 80, Sid and Marty Croft are still creating. Their current show, Mutton Stuff, can be seen on Nickelodeon. Thank you, Sid and Marty Croft, for screwing with every kid's mind and for a lifetime of entertainment. And a special thanks to Tommy for sharing his thoughts with us on these shows for the agreed-upon $10. Give him an extra dollar. Extra dollar, yes, sir. Next time on Forgotten TV. Sam Jones is the highwayman. And I want you. Jacko is Jemmo. Together. We're a salt. Two guys out to energize your Friday. What's up? Heading your way next Friday, the Highwayman. See you next week on the really cool Croft Super Show. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with Sid and Marty Croft Television Productions or any network or production company involved in the making of any show mentioned in this episode. All mentioned series and associated characters are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making the audio clips of today's episode possible. Overdog001, The Electric Eden, Tommy Retro's Blast from the Past, Know-It-All Joe, Bionic Disco, 11DB11, The Hollywood Reporter, as well as the Archive of American Television, SidAndMartyCroft.com, and the book Sid and Marty Croft, A Critical Study of Saturday Morning Children's Television. Forgotten TV has finally been approved by the Amazon gods. If you'd like an easy way to support Forgotten TV, you can click any of the Amazon DVD links anywhere in my show notes, Facebook page, or website and get whatever you want. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it's a great way to support the show. Forgotten TV is a member of the Frequent Wire Podcast Network. To find other great podcasts, such as That Twilighty Show About That Zone and To David's Walk Into a Bar, click the link to Frequent Wire in the show notes. Rate and review the show on iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe to it on any podcast app. 
Be sure and like the Forgotten TV Facebook page and follow Forgotten TV on Twitter. All that is linked up for you at Forgotten.tv. I'm Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV.